Are there certain substances or behaviors that you can't stop yourself from doing? Do you feel as if you have lost control over them? You could be suffering from addiction. Tonight, Assistant Pastor Brian Sadler shares with us how he broke his addiction and how God can free you from yours too. We're wrapping up tonight our series on mental health from a biblical perspective. Now, I've been tasked tonight with talking to you about addiction from a biblical perspective. I want to take as a text tonight, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. God talking to Cain. Cain is dealing with, he's wroth, he's angry because God has rejected his sacrifice and he is contemplating, the Bible reveals to us in this text, murderous intent towards his brother Abel. God says to him, he says, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. Now, when we talk about addiction, we're talking about things that desire to master us. Our desires, our lusts, getting out of control. You have to understand that at the root of every human being, sin is crouching at the proverbial door of our heart. You say tonight, Brother Brian, I would never be addicted. And I pray you never are. But any one of us, according to this text, has the possibility that for various reasons, and we're going to discuss them, we could find ourselves struggling with an addiction. Now, before we jump into this, I want us to pray that our hearts and minds would be open to hear from God, hear from His Word. Lord, we thank You tonight for Your Word. I pray that You would open our hearts, open our minds. Let us receive from You the Word of life. Give us fresh light, fresh vision. Give us fresh inspiration to help our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, why would we want to talk about addiction in church? Well, number one, because I feel like it's not been talked about in church at all. And it's a huge problem. Every second, 28,252 people are looking at pornography on the internet. Every second, almost 29,000 people looking at pornography on the internet. Every second, $89,000 is being spent downloading pornographic content on the internet. That is an addiction. 60% of women are addicted to lust. The average family has $8,000 in credit card debt. That is an addiction. We're addicted to spending. 50% of men are addicted to pornography. That's one out of every two. One out of every eight people struggle with alcohol addiction. Our kids watch four hours of television a day. We are training them to be addicts to technology. We can't stop eating. 63% of men and women are overweight. 49% of marriages end in divorce because folks are addicted to work and things outside the home. And many people struggle with various addictions. Even people in this room struggle, and you know who you are. I myself, lest anybody thinks I'm standing on my high horse tonight, my name is Brian and I am a recovering addict of food. Pure and simple. So unless you think I stand on my high horse tonight and look down on people struggling with addiction, hear my heart. My heart is, is that there are people in our church, in our families, in our homes, in our city that are addicted, and it is time that we surrender to God, the things that are trying to destroy us. And you say, well, what are you talking about, Brother Brian? I, I'm not addicted. I have no addiction. Well, there are such a thing as what we call acceptable addictions. Now, I know this is coffee and conversation. It's going to sting a little bit. But who might say, I have a problem with caffeine? I mean, if, the, if your first, first thought in the morning when you get up, as I can't talk to anybody until I've had my cup of joe, 
my caffeinated cup of joe, you might have a problem with caffeine. Technology. I mean, I don't know how it is at your house, but in my house, at the dinner table, I have to remind people, put your phone away, we're trying to have dinner. Put your phone away, I want to have conversation. Put your phone away, it's devotion time. No, you cannot watch TV before you go to bed. No, you cannot watch YouTube, it's time to go to bed. It's a constant fight with an addiction to technology, if I'm constantly having to check Facebook, what did this person say and what did this person think? If I'm on TikTok, now look, I know some of the older generations are like, TikTok, what is TikTok? Some of you younger ones know what TikTok is, and you can waste 20, 30 minutes before you even know it on nothing, mindless entertainment, but we got to have it. we got to have that hit, that dopamine we get from that technology. Food is an acceptable addiction, and in my case, Food is how I celebrated everything. Food is what my life revolved around. But guess what? Here's how I knew. This is how I knew I had an addiction. When I would get stressed, have a stressful day at work, before I could go home, I'd have to swing through McDonald's drive-thru or Hardee's drive-thru or somewhere and get my favorite fast food item. Sometimes a whole meal, sometimes just a snack. And I'd eat that and then go home and eat dinner because it made me feel good. That's an addiction, friend. I may not be shooting heroin. I may not be looking at pornography. I may not be drinking alcohol. I may not be smoking a cigarette. But that is an addiction just like anything else. It's a coping mechanism that is controlling a person's life to make them feel better. And how I know it's an addiction is I was hiding it. I got to throw this away before the wife sees it. Okay, learn I spent money on that. If you got to do it in secret, probably not good for you. And so how does addiction, we're talking about mental health, how does addiction apply to mental health? In my first psychology course, they made us watch a video, One Nation Under Stress. Dr. Sanjay Gupta did a study about how our nation is constantly under stress and the effect that that is having on American citizens. And he discussed what is called deaths of despair. Deaths of despair are people who are dying because their addiction either to food, alcohol, or opioids have gotten out of control. They were using those things to cope, and those three things got out of control to the point that it brought death to their life because they were in despair. Fifty million Americans in the last five years have died from deaths of despair. Eight hundred million worldwide have died from deaths of despair. When you hear people talk about the opioid epidemic, and the mental health epidemic, this is what they're talking about. If we can classify COVID as an epidemic, I'm sorry, I said five years, this is just since 2020, three years. If we can classify that as an epidemic, surely we can classify this as an epidemic. I know just this year, just this year, year. I've lost five young men around my age as a result of mental health and addiction problems. Five this year that I'm connected to. When I say connected, I'm talking about very good friends, even related. Not just acquaintances, not just my brother's mother's husband on his grandmother's side. I'm talking about people I could have called day or night and they would have answered. We were tight. If I've been affected like that in one calendar year, how many of you have been touched by this issue? And so, it is a pandemic. Now, I want to discuss for a moment what causes addiction. This is very important that we address what we think causes addiction. Society has largely come to define it as a biological issue. They call it a brain disease, that it simply is a result of genetics. Maybe you inherited it from your dad or your granddad. It runs in your family. You have a predisposition that you were born with to a taste for alcohol or a taste for drugs or a need for dopamine, however you choose to get it. Maybe it's a result of physical comorbidities. You've developed health problems that are weighing on your health and these things help you cope with that. So you do that. You partake of them right? I have pain, so I take pain pills 
to help with that pain, and it's legitimate biological, physical pain. But then I find it also gives me a rush in my brain that I need. So I look for more and for more and for more until it's out of control. Maybe it's neurodivergent. Neurodivergent, if you don't know, are people who have ADHD, autism, those types of things. We call those neurodivergent. I have a brother-in-law, Christian Hill. Some of you know him. I have no shame in telling you. Christian was born to a lady who partook of crack and other drugs while she was pregnant with him. He was born addicted to crack cocaine. It did a number on his brain, on his physical body. As a result, he is neurodivergent. He was diagnosed late in life as a high-functioning autistic person. He's on the high end of the autism spectrum. Okay, So on the surface, you might not think there's anything wrong with him, but he has very low control of his compulsions. He naturally is given to desire things he shouldn't desire. And it's hard for him to control that because of the way he was born. He naturally has a proclivity biologically to dip. He likes to dip tobacco. He naturally has a desire for alcohol. That is a legitimate biological issue brought on by his neurodivergent, brought on by the way he was born, and brought on by a traumatic birth and traumatic situation. And that touches a different thing. But all of that together has caused him to have proclivity to addiction and at times be addicted. He's had to work very hard to fight addiction. And I'm proud of him. He, he's done a good job. But that's biological. So yes, there are biological causes that need to be treated that result in addiction. Then we have psychological. There are some say, well, it's all psychological. It's all a self-esteem issue, right? A person doesn't feel worthy. A person desires to feel better about themselves, and they find that they escape the pain they have in their mind, the mental anguish, the emotional anguish, when they partake of recreational drugs or alcohol or they smoke or they eat or they whatever. They find it relieves pain. Maybe they have a mental disorder. They're bipolar, schizophrenic. They're whatever the mental health issue is, and they can't control themselves. That's psychological. Maybe it's an IQ issue. They don't have the intellectual understanding to control their com compulsions, to control those things, and find themselves addicted. Maybe it's emotional imbalance that results in a desire, a craving that they can't control. All of that is psychological. Then we have the social or the sociological. This is relationships. This is environments. So peer groups and peer pressure amongst teenagers result in them trying drugs, which results in them developing a craving for more drugs, which results in them becoming an addict. Maybe it's the environment they were raised in. Okay, Psychology teaches us that nature acts on what nurture provides so maybe naturally they had some proclivity they get in an environment where that's a norm where alcoholism is a norm or smoking is a norm it rubs off on them and it becomes part of their lifestyle that's environmental that's sociological external stressors work problems marriage problems money problems all of these things drive us to try drugs. I had a friend, a very good friend of mine, that he had a desire to make more and more money and provide for his family. He was a successful paint contractor, and he decided that he needed to get on methamphetamine because it would help him get up, get a high, where he could work all night, work all night, work all night, and paint. He was painting nursing homes for this company that was building nursing homes throughout the southeast. And he would work, 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 make money, make money, make money, until he got such, so deeply involved and he'd run up such a debt because all of his life was out of control at this point, he ended up setting fire to one of those nursing homes so he could, I forget how it was all going to work, but he was going to get some money out of the deal or something. He, 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 it was a mess. Someone who never would have tried drugs, but someone suggested it to him because it would help him with his money stress, and then, oh, I can handle it, I can control it. And it got out of control and resulted in being an addict. Now, hear what I'm about to say. Albert Einstein defines insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. As a society, the methods that we have drawn 
to deal with addiction from the conclusions we just discussed here don't seem to be working real well. If we're doing them over and over and over again and they're not working, what might we do differently? I mean, the addict, yes, the addict needs to quit repeating the cycle over and over again. But we as a society need to find a way to actually help addicted people that is effective. Now, psychology's answer to this, society's answer to this, is what we call the biopsychosocial approach. Now, we discussed biological. I'm going to step over here for just a second. We discussed biological. That's up here in this top circle. Okay, That's things like physical health, neurochemistry, metabolic disorders, genetic vulnerabilities and predispositions. All those things we mentioned are in this top circle. Okay, Then over here we have psychological. We said self-esteem, attitudes and beliefs, perceptions about themselves, their temperament, their social skills, their coping skills, their, their mental disorders. All of this is in this bubble, this circle. Now notice these overlap when we talk about how we respond to reward and our emotions. Our emotional responses touch our biological and our psychological. That's important. Okay, but then over here in the social is what we talked about. Relationships like peer groups and school and work and our socioeconomic status, our money and our culture and our family circumstances. That's all our environment and social. And it overlaps with psychological and it overlaps with biological. It overlaps with biological when we talk about diet and lifestyle and how those things affect our biological and our social. But now notice, all three of these overlap to touch what we call mental health. The three key areas that affect our mental health are touched by all three of these. That is, interpersonal relationships. In other words, family and friend relationships. All of us have relationships. Trauma is touched by all three of these. And grief is touched by all three of these. Now what does that mean? Okay, Interpersonal relationships. Family, friends, how we interact with people. The loss of those relationships can affect us biologically, can affect us psychologically, can affect us sociologically, and it can result in us finding a coping mechanism like an addiction to overcome the loss of connection, the pain that we feel from those relationship hurts. We talk about trauma. What is trauma? Trauma is when someone has gone through something, it's going to blow your mind, traumatic. What does that mean? That means when you've gone through some type of abuse, when you've gone through some type of extremely emotional or physical or mental or all of it, stressful situation. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one in a very graphic way. In my case, I'm just going to be totally vulnerable with you. I was abused by someone close to me in a very explicit way over a prolonged time. Resulted in great trauma in my life. It's part of the reason I had mental anguish. So my self-esteem, my psychological was out of whack. My relationships were out of whack because I was afraid to get close to people because they might hurt me. I was mad at some people because they could have stopped what happened to me and they didn't. I couldn't have a healthy romantic relationship with someone because of what had happened to me because I didn't know how to do that. Biologically, it hurt my growth. It hurt my body. It hurt my physical. It resulted in nervous disorders in my stomach. Part of the reason I had such severe acid reflux and other issues. So you understand trauma touched all three of those and caused me to look for a coping mechanism. Now I knew because of my beliefs and I just don't have a desire. I wasn't going to drink. I wasn't going to smoke. I wasn't going to do drugs because we don't do those things. But now food, Pentecostals love to eat. It's okay if we eat. We can go to the buffet on Sunday afternoon. We can go to Dairy Queen on Sunday night. We can eat 24-7, 365, and no one will care. And so food became my addiction. But for you, it may be something else. What is my point? My point is it is not right to say the only way to deal with addiction is from a biological perspective or from a psychological perspective or from a sociological perspective. It takes all three working together, a comprehensive, holistic approach. 
they, they, they have validated this by, saying, by, by, by doing an experiment that they call the Rat Park Experiment. The Rat Park Experiment. Now what that is, is a group of scientists years and years and years ago determined that if they put rats in a cage and gave them the choice of water, good old-fashioned pure H2O, or H2O that had a drug in it, they'd go to the H2O that had drugs in it. Over and over and over again. They'd drink it, they'd guzzle it down, and they would overdose and die. They said, well, see, that proves it. People desire drugs. Well, now, you have to look at the environment. There's more to an experiment than, than meets the eye. You've got to dig into the control group, and, and I don't have time to get into all of that, but to say that another scientist said, well, you didn't really give them any other options. What if... We put them in what he called Rat Park. We put them in the paradise of rats. It, it was lush. It had a hamster wheel from them to run on. It had all the cheeses they'd want to eat. It had two or three types of healthy type of water. It had, it had uh, mates for them to mate with and have a relationship with and all of this stuff. What if we put them in a good setup? Would they still go to the drugged water? You know what they found? They found they didn't hardly touch the drugged water. They drank all the good water and left the drug water alone. Why? They were able to extrapolate from that, and they did the same thing with monkeys and other, other animals that kind of relate to each other the same way you and I relate to each other. They were able to extrapolate from that data that when we have healthy relationships, when we have healthy connections, when we have healthy biology, psychology, and sociology, when all of that is working as it should be, we will not be as driven to find an addiction. When people feel hope, when they feel accepted, when they feel purpose, they are less drawn to addiction. You say, well, prove that from people. Okay, so they said, how can we prove this from people? And they looked at, this is around the time of the Vietnam War. They looked at the Vietnam War. And they discovered that veterans, by and large, in the Vietnam War were becoming addicted to heroin because it was helping them cope with the mental anguish and the physical pain from war. They were getting highly addicted to heroin. And they said, now here's the test. When these men go home, we're expecting there's going to be a crisis, a heroin crisis. There's going to be veterans in the street dying from addiction, dying from withdrawals because that's criminal activity. They can't do that in America. See, we can, you know, a doctor can give you heroin, and they do give you heroin, whether you realize it or not, to help you overcome pain. And the heroin that doctors give us is far better than any street heroin you're going to get because it's pure, old-fashioned pain medication. Okay, and so these guys are getting addicted. Well, what's going to happen when they get home? Well, amazingly, they discovered that the ones that went home to healthy relationships, that had purpose, that had somewhere to go and be involved in society and be accepted, they dropped the habit like it was that. Like it was nothing. They got over their pain. They got over their mental anguish. They were able to go right back and rejoin society with very little problem. So what does that tell us? That tells us when we have healthy connection, when we have healthy relationship, when we have healthy purpose, when we have, when we have hope in our lives, we are less likely to find addiction. And you say, well, Brother Brian, that seems obvious. It seems obvious, but it's not the way society has chosen to deal with addicted people. We criminalize it. We punish it. We look down upon them. We look, be honest, we look down on addicted people from a proverbial high horse. But Paul said, but if there for the grace of God, there would go I. But if not for the grace of God, there would I be. There I could be an addict too. And so they talk about the nation of Portugal. Portugal decided rather than, not that they made it where it's right for you to do drugs. Okay, don't hear me. I don't think we need to legalize drugs. That's not what I'm saying. But rather than lock people away, ruin their lives because of an addiction problem, you can never work again because you've been marked as a criminal, you've been tagged as an outcast, and you're an outcast of society. They took the same money they would have spent criminalizing those people, prosecuting those people, and put it into rehab programs, put it into creating jobs for them, putting it into giving them microloans over, they found ways that they could loan money to people that maybe they had a trade, 
but they had fallen into a drug problem. Well, hey, you know what? You've overcome your drug problem. Let us give you a small loan. Let us get you going here again. And if you prove yourself, we'll give you more money. We'll keep you going. You know what they found? Portugal was overrun with addiction back in 2000. Terrible, terrible drug problem. It's cut by nearly 60% in 20 years. Because they've chosen to give people hope, to give people purpose, to give people acceptance, to help them find healthy ways to overcome what causes them to become addicted in the first place. Now, what are you talking about, Brother Brian? Simply this. This is addiction from a biblical perspective, right? So what does the Bible say about addiction? Well, you may be shocked to know that the Word of God does in fact use the word addiction. Only in the King James Version, but it's there. It's mentioned in a positive sense, though. 1 Corinthians 16, 15, Paul speaking. He says, I beseech you, brethren, that ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So here we have this word addicted. They've addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. What a great thing to be addicted to. But the idea of addiction in the negative, like we've been discussing, does show up throughout the Bible. Jesus specifically talks about captives. He says, I've come to minister to captives. The word captives there is those held prisoner by repetitive, ongoing behaviors. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says it this way. Paul, again, speaking, says, Everything is lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is lawful, but I will not let myself be dominated by anything. I will not be brought under the power of any. What is he talking about? He's saying, I won't be brought under addiction. It's not beneficial. Addiction, as I said earlier, is always a present danger Posed to every one of us by our own nature, by our flesh. James 1 and 14 says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Each one of us is tempted and drawn away by desire. What is that? That's craving. Craving for what? Potentially addiction. It's there in our nature. We naturally have cravings and desires that we have to learn to subdue and keep in check. But what words of hope would Christ Jesus and the Word of God offer for those with addictive behavior? What role model would He have for us in how to treat addicts? Because I, most of us in this room tonight probably aren't addicts ourselves. I mean, we've played about being caffeine addicts. But if you have some form of addiction, you can get help. But I want us to look at how should we treat addicts? How should we respond to addiction from a biblical perspective? First of all, Jesus, the Lord himself, has good news for addicts. Luke 4, 16-19 tells us about Jesus going to the synagogue. It's the first time that he was to speak in front of people. He'd just been a carpenter for the last 30 years. But here he was, he's going to stand up in the synagogue and he's going to begin his preaching ministry. And so they hand him a scroll, he opens the scroll, and he reads from a passage that we now know as Isaiah chapter 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Notice that, to proclaim liberty to who? The captives, the addicted, the bound. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed by their captors, by their addictions, by their bondages. I find it interesting that the preacher John Wesley, who was a great revivalist in early history, began his ministry using this same scripture. He wasn't satisfied just preaching in his pulpit, reaching just a few people. He realized that God's ministry for him was bigger than just what went on inside the four walls of the church. He felt compelled to begin a street ministry, street preaching and ministering to those outside, going even to bars and preaching to people. And he used on his first time preaching in that fashion this text, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaim it is the acceptable year of the Lord. He records in his journal reaching 3,000 souls in one year because he was driven by the example of Christ that we are called to go and preach to the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. I mean, that's some messy bunch of folks. I mean, I don't know about you, when God called me to preach, I didn't envision myself necessarily preaching to broke people, to broken people, to blind people, to sick people, addicted people. No, every young preacher envisions himself being the mega church pastor where there's no problems and everybody's perfect. But that is not what Jesus has called us to. Why? Because all of us are flawed. Every one of us falls in one or all of these categories. At some point or another, you've been poor. You've been brokenhearted. You've been captive. You've been blind. You've been oppressed. All of us, every one of us, it's the state of the human condition. But for some people, that fleshly pull is so profound that it shows itself in life-dominating sins that we call addictions. Hebrews 12 and 1 tells us, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Sin that easily besets us, that easily dominates us, that easily masters us, that easily holds us captive, that we're addicted to, that we can't seem to get over. I mean, almost every one of us, if we were honest, has some sin that we struggle with. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's tobacco. Maybe it's whatever. Somebody said, Brian, will smoking send you to hell? Smoking may not send you to hell, but it will make you smell like you've been there. But the fact of the matter is, we all struggle with something that makes us hard for us to run this Christian journey, that dominates our life, that masters us, that controls us. But Jesus has a special message for just such a people. First of all, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news. We need to remember that our message as a church ought to be a message of good news. We tend to make good news sound like bad news. You wouldn't want to come to church with me, would you? I mean, you look like you need some joy. And, uh, you know, you come to church with me, you won't be able to do anything. You have to go to church all the time. You have to pray all the time. You have to read your Bible all the time. And you'll have joy like you've never known. Bless God. Right? We make the gospel hair, hymns, hoes, television. The four H's of holiness. When the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus loves everyone. That Jesus cares for everyone. What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us very simply, the gospel is that Jesus came, died, was buried, rose again from the dead, and he did it for you. And you're identified with Him in that when you repent of your sins, you die out to your sinful nature. When you're buried in baptism, that old man is buried just as Christ was buried. And when you receive His Holy Spirit in your heart, you are resurrected in new life just as the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul said that same Spirit now lives in you, raising you to new life and giving you power. And I said I wasn't going to preach tonight, so I'm not. But that's the gospel. It's good news. It should excite you that Jesus has given you power and fresh life. Someone asked Charles Spurgeon, tell us the gospel in four words. He said very simply, Christ died for me. Christ died for me. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That Christ died for me. Christ died for you. Christ died for them. He said, he's called me to preach the gospel, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Captives there refers to prisoners of war, POWs, prisoners of war. Now, I remember when I was a kid, very distinctly, 
They started a program, an initiative the government did. They called it the War on Drugs. We're going to end drugs. Well, guess what? We've been fighting the war on drugs since the 80s, and it's no better. It's no better. When I was a kid, it was D.A.R.E. D.A.R.E., the D.A.R.E. program. Let's see, Drug Abuse Resistance Education, right? D.A.R.E. D.A.R.E. to say no. Well, that sounds good. Didn't seem to work for a lot of my friends, though. Why? Because their biological, psychological, sociological was all out of whack. Their relationships were out of whack. They'd been through trauma. They had grief. They had all kinds of mess and mental anguish and emotional anguish and physical anguish. And D.A.R.E. was not going to address that. Oh, it's real neat and tidy to say, D.A.R.E. to say no. But we have to address the mental health, the holistic of the person. So Jesus says, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives, the prisoners of war. If you feel failed and captured by addiction, if you feel like you're in bondage you'll never get out of, you feel like you've just been barraged by the enemy of your soul, Jesus has a special message for those who have been barraged by the enemy and who are in bondage of addiction. And that is that he has a good plan he doesn't just have a good message, good news, but he has a good plan for addicts. He said, I've come to proclaim liberty, to preach liberty, to tell you there's liberty. But he said, I've also come to set at liberty those that are oppressed. See, to proclaim liberty is to preach, but to set at liberty is to do what you preach. Jesus didn't just have a nice sermon for addicts, but he had a great strategy for them. How? How do you get free from addiction? How? What was his strategy? What was his plan? Number one, he can do it just supernaturally. He's God. He can do anything. He can instantly take away a bad desire. I reminded of my friend Don Lusk who preached a revival for us here years ago. Called himself the soul winner without a license. Brother Lusk was a radical soul winner. Some of you might have been here for that revival. Awesome man of God. But he was highly addicted to drugs. I think it was LSD what he was doing. And he went to a church in Michigan. Somebody invited him and he was high when he got there. And he said, uh, man, the service was going on and things got to moving. And he said, people got to running. He said, man, the whole church got him started running. And they were just running in circles all around me. Just 30, 40, 50 people running in circles all around me and shouting and rejoicing. He said, I thought this was crazy. He said, but then the preacher got up and preached and it was like he preached right to me what I was dealing with. And he said, I went to an altar and I repented. He said, and then I got the Holy Ghost and they told me I need to be baptized in Jesus' name. He said, well, I've done this crazy stuff. What else? Why not? Let's go whole hog. And he said, I got in the baptismal water. He said, well, my buddy Monty got in it before me. And he said, Monty, he looked up and done. Done. He came up out of the water. He said, man, the high is gone. The cravings are gone. All of it's gone. Well, I said, well, then put me in the water. I need to be set free. They put him in the water. Got back. Sure enough, he said it was like all the LSD, all the drugs just oozed out of his body. There was no more craving, no more desire, no more struggle. It was supernatural, instantaneous delivery. He said he also realized that there wasn't 50 or 60 people running around him. It was really just one or two people, but he was so high that all his perception was messed up. He said, man, you Pentecostals weren't quite as crazy as I thought you were. But it was a radical conversion. God radically, and I'm glad for Don Lusk, and he's never relapsed, and that's awesome. And I, I could tell you other testimonies where God's done that for people, but that's the exception. It, it's not the norm. It's not. More often, the way God is going to choose to help us overcome addiction is he does it supernaturally, naturally. What does that mean, supernaturally, naturally? It is supernatural power that comes through a natural process. In other words, it's the principle of cooperation. If you're familiar with the Scripture in the Old Testament, you're familiar with this principle. God leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. He takes them to the Promised Land. He tells them, if you'll go into the Promised Land, I will, I will help you defeat the enemy. I will help you drive out the enemy. You'll have victory. You'll have milk and honey and all of this promise, all these blessings that he promised them. But what was that contingent on? They had to pick up their sword, be willing to march in there and go to war. They had to be willing to walk around the walls of Jericho and see them fall. They had to be obedient. They had to cooperate with what the Spirit was speaking to them to do. 
God just wasn't going to magically do it for them. They had to walk it out in obedience, cooperation. It's a New Testament principle as well in sanctification and salvation. When you're saved, you understand there's justification and there's sanctification. Justification means you're immediately forgiven. Your sin debt is justified. But sanctification is God working in us to make us what the Bible calls a vessel of honor, a vessel that he can be proud of and can use to help reach the world and work through. Paul tells us that we might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, catch that. This is Colossians. He said, you got forgiveness of sins. You've got cleansing of blood from Jesus Christ. He's forgiven you. You're justified. But he started it by saying that you might walk worthy of the Lord and to all pleasing, being fruitful and every good work, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. What is he saying? you got to do your part. you got to walk worthy. you got to walk out your sanctification. you got to allow God to change you by you walking with him in obedience and the way he instructs you and commands you. It's a principle of cooperation. And so oftentimes it works with addiction. God gives us supernatural power to help us through natural processes. We work in cooperation with God, his word, and his spirit. Now, this is what I feel like the Lord revealed to me. A plan to help you or help others overcome addiction. We must isolate the addiction. Isolate it in what I'm calling a four-sided box. So if addiction is here, we're going to build four walls around it and isolate it. The first wall is accurate assessment. Accurate assessment. Do not underestimate your addiction. This is where many people fail. Uh, It's not that big a deal. I can stop anytime I want. But they never do. It keeps going. The cycle continues. They keep telling themselves, eh, it's not a big deal. It's not, it's not big. It'll go away. We must have an accurate assessment. Do not underestimate your addiction. Second, understand that addiction is the struggle of a lifetime. Not only do I mean the struggle of a lifetime, that it's the hardest struggle you'll ever face, the struggle of a lifetime that you might struggle with it your whole lifetime. I've been... Thank the Lord. I am what I would call sober of food addiction. I am. But I struggle every day. My wife's not home and she's out of town. I hear, the, I hear the peanut butter pie Oreos at Food Line calling my name. I could eat a whole carton of them. And I have before, even recently. Shouldn't have, but did. Okay? An accurate assessment. I know for me, that's an addiction. Whatever it is for you, assess. This is the problem, and it is a real problem, and I need to deal with it because it's not going away. It's not getting any better. It's going to send me to an early grave. It's going to ruin my relationships. Whatever, the list goes on. Accurate assessment. An addiction is not a typical challenge that everybody goes through. It's the struggle of a lifetime. In fact, there will probably never be a greater challenge in your entire lives. All other problems will pale in comparison. One author who was once addicted wrote these words, early recovery is one big dramatic event and your emotional core is bouncing down the side of a mountain. It is an emotional roller coaster. The same phenomenon can be observed when someone tries to quit smoking. The smoker seems like they will notice that every time they try to quit smoking, all this drama pops up in their life. I quit smoking and now everybody's annoying me. Everybody's going crazy. Everything's nuts. I quit drinking coffee and now everybody's nuts. I quit eating and now everybody's nuts. Is it really that everybody's nuts or is it that your addiction, you were using it to cope and it made things more palatable and now you don't have that coping mechanism and the world seems crazy and your emotions are out of check. You've been fooled by your addiction. Withdrawal from nicotine or drugs or pornography or food turns up the intensity on life. It turns up the emotional intensity of our lives. And so an accurate assessment is the first wall of the box that's going to surround and isolate our addiction. 
The second wall is overwhelming force. If it takes 200 soldiers to take over an enemy base, then logic tells us bring 800 or 1,000. Overwhelm that enemy base and you'll win. Overwhelming force. Now we know that in the natural. No chance for failure. The same should be true in our lifestyle and addiction. I'm going to overwhelm it with force. I'm going to set up accountability. I'm going to set up safeguards. I'm going to set up things that keep it in check. If you have a pornography addiction, then maybe you should set up safeguards on all your electronic devices that the minute you search something you shouldn't, it's blocked. That the minute you search something you shouldn't, not only is it blocked, but it pings your wife's phone or your accountability partner's phone or whoever's phone and says, hey, so-and-so is looking at and you need to contact them. Those things exist. That's overwhelming your addiction with force. Okay? I'm using that as one example. You could find others. But overwhelm it. Set up accountability. Change your playground and your playmates. You have to change your playground. You need to get as many people around you as you can on a new playground that are the right kind of people to hold you accountable and help you through this. In other words, change your environment. Don't keep, if you're an alcoholic, don't keep going to the bar. Right? Find you a new place to go, some new friends to hang out with. They're going to help you stay sober. If I am a food addict, I'm not going to the riots all you can eat buffet. Or the Golden K route. I'm going to find me some new friends who are going to invite me to Gold's Gym and to Planet Fitness and help me stay on the straight and narrow. To Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers. Bless God. I'll be real transparent with you. I haven't been this vulnerable with anybody in a large setting, but I'll go ahead and do it because I just feel it. I'm feeling my Wheaties. I had gastric bypass surgery. Now, I had it for two reasons. One, I did have esophageal cancer and had to have part of my esophagus removed, okay? That is not, and that's mainly what I told you. I'm having it to fix the cancer. But the other is, I knew that I needed that kind of overwhelming force to overcome my food addiction. I knew I needed the accountability that a weight loss clinic and weight loss surgery and things of that nature would bring to my life. I needed that kind of restriction. Now, you may not have to be that radical, but it is biblical. Jesus said, if my right eye offends me, pluck it out. If my left hand offends me, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into heaven maimed than to enter into hell whole. Overwhelming force. The third wall is zero tolerance. Recovery is pass or fail. Everything else in life will depend on your sobriety. Relationships depend on it. Your viability will depend upon it. Your effectiveness depends on it. And if this is an issue, you need to make an agreement with yourself that says, I can never use again. I can never take another drink. I can never watch the wrong stuff again. No matter what, whatever the problem is, I'm going to cut it off. I'm going to cut it out. Zero tolerance for it. You know what one of my biggest vices was? Soda. So you know what I don't drink? No question asked. If you see me with a regular Dr. Pepper, because I was a Dr. Pepper-holic in my hand, 160 ounces a day of Dr. Pepper. I did the math. 160 ounces of Dr. Pepper a day. You know how many empty calories that is? How many pounds you can put on? If you see me with a soda that is not a zero sugar in my hand, you slap it out of my hand. You have my permission. I have to be that radical in my sense. I have to have zero tolerance because that will lead to me falling off. Whatever it is for you, you've got to say, I have zero tolerance. Now, here's the caveat. People say, well, I've done that before, and I fall right back into addiction. I try cold turkey, and I, it doesn't work. But when you put it with these other two principles, right? When you put it with the overwhelming force, when you put it with... The accurate assessment, the overwhelming force, those two principles work, then the zero tolerance principle is much easier. Much easier. And it's of greater help. But the fourth wall is the wall of highest power. Highest power. If you are familiar at all with the language of recovery, you've heard the term higher power. They will say you need a higher power in this walk, in this journey. And it's this very sort of innocuous, nondescript, you need a higher power, whatever that is. 
You just pick a higher power and trust that. No, no, and no. You do not need a higher power. You need the highest power. And that only comes through one source, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the highest power to help us overcome addiction. And as the addict learns of the love of Christ, and as the addict learns of the power of his Holy Spirit, and as the addict is surrounded with and interacts with healthy believers such as us, they will discover a whole new life. A whole new life. Understand that effectiveness in recovery is more than just saying no to the menace, no to the addiction. And it is saying yes to the maker. Yes to the ultimate master. No to this master who menaces me. And yes to the master who loves me, who cares for me, who gives me purpose, who created me, who said he formed me in my mother's womb and he had a plan for me. And it wasn't for me to be an addict, to be broken, and be disgusted. But it was a plan to prosper me and to give me hope and to give me an expected end. When these four walls are built, then we've isolated this germ of addiction. And when we've done that, we can wipe it out. Think about it like a germ, okay? If you come in the barbershop, you'll notice I've got these two boxes that put off UV light. They're called UV sterilizers. I can put my tools with all the bacteria and crust and dirt from people's heads under that UV light after I've sterilized them, okay, with spray and disinfectant. I can put them under that light and it keeps them sanitary and kills pathogens and bloodborne viruses and other stuff. Now, if that's true in the natural, it also is true in the spiritual. John 3, 19 through 21 tells us, Jesus said, And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Lest his secret sins and addictions be exposed, he stays in darkness. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What does that light do? It sterilizes and drives out the darkness. It drives out the virus of sin. It drives out the virus of addiction. So, accurate assessment, overwhelming force, zero tolerance, and the highest power, the light and the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus has a good message for addicts. He has a good plan and strategy for addicts. He has a good reputation among addicts. What do I mean by this? Very simply, the Gospels tell us over and over again that Jesus didn't hang out with the elite of society. He hung out with sinners. It literally calls him Jesus, friend of sinners. Some called him a glutton and a wine-bibber because he hung out with drunks and he hung out with robbers and he hung out with murderers and prostitutes. I mean, remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man that climbed up the sycamore tree to see Jesus and Jesus is walking by and says, hey man, get down from there, let's go have dinner. Right? What was Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a lying, cheating snake and nobody liked him because he betrayed his people to the Roman government so they'd have to pay their taxes. He robbed from people. He stole from people. But you said, let me come to your house and let me eat with you. See, the most religious Jews would never socialize with the outcasts and with these types of people. But Jesus did. And the Bible calls the church the body of Christ. We are the representatives of Jesus Christ. As if we are his physical body. Our hands reach out to people in His name. Our feet go out to people in His name. Our mouths bring a message of hope and love in His name. He told them in John 13 and 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. As I have loved you, you love one another. We could become an army of love. An army. You want to fight a war on drugs? You fight it with the love and the mercy and the grace and the light of Jesus Christ and His Word and the power of His Spirit. What does the Bible say can help stem the tide of addiction? That's what we're talking about. A biblical perspective of addiction. 
What brings acceptance? What brings hope? What brings purpose to a wounded soul? Because an addict is simply that. Their soul is wounded. Their psyche is wounded. Their body is wounded. Their mind is wounded. Right? The relationships are wounded. They've been through trauma. They've been through grief. What helps that type of person? That the ultimate healing is the love of Jesus. 1 John 4 and 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Fear involves torment. The torment of sin. You say, well, it's fear. Fear involves torment. Yeah, fear of what? Fear of rejection. Fear of failure. Fear of trauma and the pain that brings. All of these things drive a person to addiction, but love drives that fear out. If you're afraid to deal with your trauma, can I tell you, having been someone who survived trauma, yes, post-traumatic stress disorder is real, and I suffered from it and didn't realize it. I thought I was just afraid of the dark. I thought I was a 29-year-old that was afraid of the dark. In reality, I was afraid of the dark because of abuse I had experienced, and when I overcame those abuses, I can be alone in a dark room now. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. But your disorder doesn't have to define you. Because the love of Jesus and the love of people in my life who helped me, I experienced what's called post-traumatic stress growth, PTSG. I've been able to grow and overcome those traumas. And if I did it through the love of Jesus, through the love of people, if God did it for me, He will do it for you. He will do it for them. You can grow past your trauma. You don't have to cope with an addiction. Get addicted to Jesus. Get addicted to loving this world. Society says if you are born an addict, you will always be an addict. But Jesus says my love and my gospel can make you new, can set you free. But we have to cooperate. We have to make a choice. Remember we started with the text that sin lieth at the door waiting to consume you. But in the last book of the Bible, we have this promise. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. So at the same time, sin is knocking at your door. Jesus is knocking at your door tonight saying, I can set you free. I can give you new life. I can help you if you'll just open the door. If you'll just let me in. Which answer are you going to answer to? Which master are you going to be mastered by? Are you going to continue an addiction? Are you going to say, you know what? It ends Tonight, I'm going to accurately assess. I'm going to overwhelm it with the force of God's love. I'm going to have a zero tolerance policy to be holy as God is holy. And I'm going to let the love of Jesus and his highest power change my life. For he that the Son sets free is free indeed. Ask yourself, what does my addiction give me that my Jesus couldn't give me? Jesus is going to give you freedom. Jesus is going to give you joy. He's going to give you peace. He's going to give you things you can never even begin to fathom or imagine. It is time for the church to help the addicted and inflicted. That's why we've took the time to talk about mental health. That's why people like myself are saying, you know what, I'm going back to school and getting a degree where I can help people through the love of Jesus heal and overcome mental health issues and disorders because it is an epidemic, it is a problem, and we are called to love people as Jesus loved us called to love people as Jesus loved us. I told you of John Wesley, who read Isaiah 61, that Jesus had come to proclaim liberty and set at liberty captives. His brother Charles, from that same passage, wrote this song, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. It says, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. If He did it for me, He'll do it for you. He'll do it for them. If He loves me, He loves you, He loves them. And if you and I claim to love Him, we have to love them as well. So why we talked about mental health? Because the only addiction the church should have is the addiction to ministry to a lost and dying world and to the perfecting of the saints. To help one another, exhort one another, encourage one another to good works. To get wrapped up in loving one another as Jesus loved 
us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you tonight for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. God, I pray that if there's anybody here that is struggling with mental health, whether it be depression, whether it be anxiety, whether it be loneliness or addiction, God, that you would help them find the help that they need, find the truth in your word, that you would set them free. And God, that if you would help us, empower us to love those around us, even the unlovable, those that have hurt us, those that have wronged us, God, they did so under the yoke of sin. Help us to love them and see them set free by your blood and your love and your mercy. We thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Go with us from this place. In Jesus' name, go with God. <laughs>